Amen. Well, as you know, if you didn't know before you came in, today's Palm Sunday. And if you're like, what in the world is Palm Sunday? Well, you're about to find out what Palm Sunday is all about. Um, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, where we're going to be instructed. So we'll pick up our study in Genesis, um, not next week, but the following week. And look forward to seeing you guys out here for that. And the, uh, the sunrise service will be the same message as the three inside. But for some people, you, you know, they're just going to feel more comfortable uh, being outdoors. And it also gives us a fourth service. And um, we used to do it all the time over the other place. And it was, a, it was a great turnout, and so we look forward to seeing there. It looks like the weather's going to be pretty decent, too, so that's a bonus. The title of this study is Royalty in Your Midst. And we're going to actually take that from verse 28 down to verse 44. When Jesus came on the scene, there was announcements that were made. Um, you had the angels, right, who came and spoke to Mary, spoke to Joseph in the dream. You had... Uh, the angels that, that were proclaiming and singing songs to the Lord, um, of the Lord at, the, at his birth, and the shepherds watched. The shepherds went over and they worshipped the Lord. You had the wise men that came from the east, and they came to worship the one who was born a king of the Jews. All these are positive affirmations of Jesus' royalty um, surrounding his birth. You had a negative uh, uh, reaction, too, and that is with Herod the Great, right? When he heard there was another king born, he had every child two years of age and younger to be put to death in the area near Bethlehem. At his death, there was, there was acknowledgement that he was king, but most of this acknowledgement was, was not real. It was not sincere. It was meant to be a mockery. However, in their insincerity and their mockery, they were speaking truth that they could not even begin to understand. They clothed him in a purple robe, mocking his royalty when he was going through his beating. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They gave him a staff that was a reed, and they beat him over the head with that. When they wrote down what his crime was as he hung on the cross, they wrote, King of the Jews, and they placed it over his head. So there were these acknowledgments that Jesus was a king, but at his death, they weren't very meaningful. Sadly, Israel's leaders did not recognize Jesus as king. They saw him as a false prophet, as an as a antichrist, and they rejected him, and they had him put to death. But as we come into this chapter, which of course precedes his crucifixion, but only by about a week, um, this is his last week of life, and what we're going to see is that he goes out of his way to show who he is. And so let's read from verses 28 down to verse 36 about a royal entry into Jerusalem. And when he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. 
And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. So Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem, where he on this day, Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry Sunday, is going to be acknowledged by his disciples as the king of Israel. It's going to cause great disturbance among the leaders, and they're going to ask Jesus to stop. It's going to cause the entire town to stir with curiosity, and eventually they will reject him. But this is the scene that we're in right now. As he is making his way, a little map there um, shows you. you got the Dead Sea that's uh, there in the middle of that picture. And then as you go, move to the, to the left. In that circle, you have Bethany and Bethphage, which is, it's, and you're ascending the whole way. So you're down below sea level. Um, when you're at Jericho, and that road from Jericho takes you up there and would go through these two cities all the way into Jerusalem. Jesus has stayed up there at the house of Lazarus. This is where Mary and Martha lived as well, the sisters of Lazarus who had been raised from the dead. This is where Mary broke that uh, costly bottle of perfume and poured it out on him and worshipped him for his burial and where Judas says, what a waste. You should have given it to me. I could have used that for my you know, Caribbean getaway. But you know, this, was, this is the scene that was going on. And so now that event is over. The mill has been had. And he's going to make his way into Jerusalem. And he's coming from these two cities. So Bethany and Bethphage, although we don't know exactly where that city is today. Um, we know it's nearby Bethany. It's, only, it's about two miles east of Jerusalem. And so as you move towards Jerusalem, you come to the Mount of Olives. And this was a place that we'll talk about in just a moment. But if you're familiar at all with the ministry of Jesus, and we've been going through this on uh, Wednesday night, the Gospel of Luke, actually, what we see is that Jesus would often heal somebody, and then he would say, don't tell anybody. Which kind of surprises us, because we expect him to, to want that to be announced everywhere. And usually, people were so excited they couldn't contain themselves, and they, they told everybody. The reason he didn't want them to do that is because he wanted the freedom to move from city to city. And um, he wanted to take the gospel in little known towns that if Jesus had not gone there, we probably would have never known about them. And that was his heart. That was his desire is to get into these little villages and preach the good news of the kingdom. Every now and then he would tell somebody to go and share. Um, but on this instance, in Luke chapter 19... Jesus goes out of his way to make certain that a prophecy is fulfilled and that people understand who he is because it's time for Israel to understand. And yet we're going to read, sadly, that they don't. So Palm Sunday is the Sunday that Jesus rode in Jerusalem to be acknowledged as king and um, yet is not, except by his disciples. We read that he comes riding on a donkey and as he comes, this is in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus comes in fulfillment of this prophecy that was given by Zechariah. Now, I encourage you on your own to read the rest of that prophecy 
Because as he goes through, he then begins to describe what's going to happen in Jesus' second coming. When you read that passage, though, you're not going to say, okay, first coming. This is what's going to happen. Okay, now second coming. It just reads as one singular coming. But, of course, now we can look back in time and know that he has two comings. And so we have the first and second. The first one, he comes upon a donkey. The second one, he's coming to destroy the enemies of Israel. But Israel's expecting him to destroy the enemies at this time. And he is going to destroy an enemy, but it's a spiritual enemy that he's going to fight against. So for him to come, he's coming riding on this donkey. When he returns at the second coming, he's going to come riding on what? A white war horse that's being, you know, unleashed from the stables of heaven. And he's going to come down at the end of the great tribulation and he's going to rescue Israel. And we will be riding along with him as he comes back to this earth to set up his kingdom. Now Jesus is coming from this area and it says that it was on the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives, you probably have all seen a picture of the Mount, uh, from the Mount of Olives. It's this iconic picture. You've got the, the Muslim shrine there. Uh, and this is where that shrine sits. That is known as the Temple Mount. It is where uh, the temple used to be, where King Solomon built his temple. Um, Muslim shrines and mosques were not there at, this at that time. They are now today, but this is known as the Temple Mount. So you have, from this picture, you would have Bethany behind you. And you have the slope of the Mount of Olives. As you go down that slope, you can get to the bottom, you are in what is known as the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley then rises up towards the Temple Mount. And when you get to the Temple Mount, you are now in the city of Jerusalem. So it's compact. Some of you have been there before. You know the journey. You know the walk. The Palm Sunday Road goes kind of off to the right. Would have it's an ancient path that Jesus would have taken with the disciples down that mountain um, slope. The Mount of Olives, it's a significant place, right? A lot of things happen here. This is where Jesus ascended into heaven, was from atop of the Mount of Olives. At the base of the Mount of Olives, Olives you have the Garden of Gethsemane. So a lot happened in a really concentrated location. You can walk to all of these locations um, if it wasn't for the hills, you could do it in no time, but those, the hills kind of slow you down. So this is where Jesus ascended. This is where Jesus is going to return. When he comes back upon, uh, back to earth on that white horse, the climax of his return will be when he sets his feet upon this mountain and it will split in two and he will make his way down into Jerusalem and rescue those Jews that are being harassed and about to be killed by the Antichrist. So a lot goes on in this scene. You're looking again at the Temple Mount there, where the Dome of the Rock is. The Temple Mount was previously known as Arana's threshing floor. Who's that? This is, remember when David made a count of the nation of Israel and he was told, don't count them. But in his pride, he counted them because he wanted to see how great he had become. And he did this and did not make proper sacrifice for it. And then God caused a plague to break out upon Israel. And so he wanted to make an offering to the Lord. And so city of David is just, just right down from that. If you were to go to the left of this picture and kind of go down that slope, you'd be in the city of David. So they really, they, uh, Temple Mount and city of David connect into each other. 
And so David wants to buy this piece of land, and he wants to buy an oxen, and he wants to buy the implements that are associated with this, that he might make a sacrifice to the Lord. And so he asks Arana, he goes, I want to buy this, I want to buy your ox, I want to buy the, you know, the implements, I want to make an offering to the Lord. And Arana says, you can have it for free. And he says, I'm not going to give anything to the Lord that doesn't cost me. I'm going to give something that costs me something. And so you have the most significant real estate transaction ever in the history of the world took place. David bought this piece of land, one of the most disputed pieces of property on planet Earth. It's the place where Jesus was crucified. It's also known as Mount Moriah. What happens on Mount Moriah, what really stands out to us the first time we think of Mount Moriah, and we'll get to it on Sunday mornings in the book of Genesis, is when God tells Abraham to take his son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice on top of this mountain. The same place where the Temple Mount and Golgotha is just a short distance from here. All of that same little mountain stretch. And this is the piece of land. So this is what you see um, as you look at it. A lot takes place. It's on this Temple Mount um, where the temple used to be. And all around the, the temple grounds there were these pillars. And on all of these pillars there were hooks. And at the Passover meal... They would bring their lambs in to be offered up, and they would sacrifice them. And as they were sacrificing them, they would um, then take them, and they would, you know, take the hide off, the, take the skin off, and then they would, but they would put them on hooks as they were preparing this animal to be uh, taken home. And so if you would have looked around the temple, you would have seen all these lambs hanging on hooks all around. At the same exact time, Jesus is there just a short distance away on Golgotha. And what is he doing? And the Lamb of God is hanging up on the cross and is being offered up as the Lamb of God. And while they were up there, they would have been uh, chanting the Hallels. And one of the Hallels is, Lord, save now. Could you imagine if you could take all the knowledge you have of the Old and New Testament right now, go back to that scene and watch them with all these lambs all over the place and saying, Lord, save now, and knowing and seeing Jesus right over there. He'd be like, he is. <laughs> he is saving now. And this, this very instant he is saving now. He is your Messiah. He is your king. And yet they do not see this. Keep on reading. In verses 35 and 36, we see that they, they put their clothes on the colt, and then they put their clothes on the road. Both of these things. So a, 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 a donkey that's never been written, clothes on its back, and clothes on the ground in front of it. It was a way of showing incredible respect, but getting upon an animal, which is a miracle in, its, in itself, that had never been ridden, for Jesus to be able to get on that and not be, you know, turn into a little, you know, messianic rodeo, was another miracle that was going on. And... And they're just worshiping him. It's his disciples that are doing that. The whole town's going to be moved by it. But it's his disciples that are doing this. And it's a way to just speak of the greatness of the one. Um, you see them in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 3. Um, they put uh, cloaks and stuff on the ground where Jehu, King Jehu, was going to be uh, walking. So 
this was something that is not brand new. It's not a new idea, but it was just an expression of respect. It was a way of acknowledging the greatness of the person that's there. Now, what Luke does not include is the palm branches. You can read about that in the other gospel accounts, but Luke doesn't put the palm branches down. Um, we don't really know why. You'll have to ask him when he gets there. Some have said it's because he's writing to a Gentile audience who may not have understood the significance um, in Judaism, um, national, nationalistic view of the palm branch. And there is some history behind it. It's, it's outside of Scripture. The, the palm branches you would expect to not be at the Feast of Passover, but at the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. That's where they remembered that they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and God saw them and they would set up lean-tos. They do it to this day. And little shelters. And they would put palm branches there and they would look up in the sky and tell their children of how the Lord took care of them. This is one of the other feasts. You would expect the palm branches at the Feast of Tabernacle, not the Feast of Passover. So why are they here? The lamb is the, the, the significant symbol. The unleavened bread is the significant symbol. <clears throat> the Passover meal itself. But why palm branches? Because palm branches have become a symbol of liberation in uh, Israel's thinking at this time. Um, Josephus makes mention of this as a uh, national symbol. Um, it was a prominent feature uh, when the temple was rededicated by the Maccabeans in 164 BC. The palm branches were a big part of that rededication. When another man, Simon, had victory over uh, the Syrians in 141 BC, again, they used palm branches to celebrate the liberation. When uh, then in 66 and 70 AD, they were minting coins there in Israel, they had palm branches on them. And so palm branches became synonymous with the nationalistic hopes that a Messiah liberator would come into their midst. So we don't read it in Luke, but it's in the other accounts. They have them on a donkey. They have them upon the, putting the clothes down, but they're also putting the palm branches down. And it was a way of saying, all right, Jesus, do your thing. Do it now. Go down in there and liberate us from Rome. But he wasn't going to do that. He was going to liberate them from the power of sin. And that is who he was coming to, to liberate. Uh, what he was coming to liberate was death and sin. Now he's going to come back again. And when he comes back in, he will dispose a physical enemy, the Antichrist and his armies and the armies of the world that have gathered together. Very well may be uh, the Antichrist, a, uh, the leader of a revived Roman Empire. Wouldn't surprise me at all if he descends from an ancient empire that has been revived in the last days. They're the ones that put him on the cross. It's the one they were expecting him to, be, to, to deliver them from. So at his second coming, if it happens again, it shouldn't surprise any of us. Of course, that is a point that some people um, will debate over, whether it's revived Roman Empire or something else. But I think it's as good a guess as any. And there's some biblical reasons for it as well. So this is, this is the scene. This is the donkey, a prophecy. It's, it's your king is coming. It was a hope of liberation. And Jesus is coming in and has gone out of his way to have everybody look at him. Let's keep reading there in Luke chapter 19, verses 37 and 38, where royal praise is offered up to Jesus. Then, 
as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples, okay, it's the disciples, it's his followers, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead, Lazarus being raised from the dead, blind Bartimaeus walking on the water, 5,000 fed, 4,000 fed miraculously. Uh, you know, people, demons cast out, people who couldn't speak, their mouths were opened up, all kinds of miracles. And as they're thinking about that, and as he's coming down, they are just in full-blown worship mode. And what do they say? Verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Psalm 118, verse 26. Probably first written referring to David coming back into the city of Jerusalem after battles and then going up into the house of the Lord to worship. The pilgrims would have quoted this. Psalm 118, 26. It was part of the Hallels, the praise psalms. Um, Psalm 113 through 118. They would have been uh, chanting these and singing these as they made their way into Jerusalem. So the quoting from this was right in line with everything they've heard, but now they're like, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And that's what Jesus does. When Jesus comes into a town, when he comes into a person's life, it's all about peace. Isn't this what the angels announced at his birth? Isn't this what Jesus said, that peace I give unto you? Jesus wants us to know this peace. And they're worshiping him and they are praising him. Again, it was the Psalm 118, verse 26, that would have been uh, being chanted there in the temple. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory on the highest. And there he is hanging upon the cross. And so they are missing. There's disciples. They understand some that he's, he's a Messiah. But they don't fully understand all that is going to take place. In Psalm 21.10 we read. I'm Psalm. Matthew 21.10 we read, and when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? So the entire city is questioning and is aware that some significant event is going on. They're not all the, it's not the entire city, though, that's saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not the ones saying that. They know there's a stir going on. And we'll read in just a moment of how the uh, Pharisees come and they begin to rebuke, uh, ask Jesus to rebuke his disciples. But when we read all the city was moved, how many people are we talking about here? Well, the Passover was one of the mandatory feasts of Israel, and so a lot of people would have been there. Josephus, he was a Jewish historian. He gives a number to us uh, from this time period about how many people would have been there. He says there was 256,500 sheep that were offered up during the Passover. And about 10 people would have partaked of each sheep. So you would have had over, well, about 2.7 million. Now some will say, oh, but Josephus was a historian and he exaggerated. Okay, let's say he did exaggerate. But you get the point, don't you? This city was jam-packed with people. It was shoulder to shoulder. Every room, every space was full. And as Jesus comes in, 
everybody is asking, who is this? Who is this one? That they're, are they saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of, of, of Jehovah, Yahweh? Who is this? And so there's this stirring that's going on in this city. Verse 39 through 42, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city, that would be Jerusalem, and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. So this event we're reading of, Palm Sunday, triumphal entry, prophesied by Zechariah, also prophesied by Daniel. Jesus weeps over Israel's blindness that they don't recognize this day. He says, you should have known, especially this day. Maybe you don't understand every day. Maybe you don't understand every event, but this was an event you should have got. This was one that you should have been aware of, and they weren't aware. If you do a study of Daniel chapter 9, we get a super interesting prophecy concerning the Messiah. In Daniel 9, 24 through 27, Israel is told that 483 years after a decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, the Messiah would come. That decree is given in the book of Nehemiah when Nehemiah comes and rebuilds the wall of Jerusalem. And from that time when the decree was given, he says, you should have known. 483 years later, the Messiah was going to come to Jerusalem. The Lord was specific, so specific. And here you hear Jesus' expectation that they should have identified it this day. It shouldn't have escaped them. Maybe other things would get by them, but not this one. This one was too important. And yet the triumphal entry is happening, and what takes place? His disciples say, blessed is the, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And then the, the Pharisees show up, the religious leaders, and they say, Tell him to be quiet. Rebuke your disciples. Now I imagine that his disciples were so loud and the city's beginning to be a buzz. I hear the, just imagine the Pharisees yelling at Jesus and Jesus is like, what? I can't hear you. And eventually he says, oh, you want me to rebuke them? If they are rebuked and they're quiet, then the stones are going to start speaking. Somebody said, I wish that his disciples would have been quiet for just a minute. Just a minute to see what would have happened. Because this prophecy was such, somebody was going to acknowledge that Jesus was king. And so, was Jesus speaking in hyperbole, or was he speaking literally if there had been silence? I don't know. We can ask him when we get there. But if you ever go to um, Jerusalem, you can grab a rock from Jerusalem, and come home, put it on your table, and in just ugly old nothing kind of a rock, just put it right there. And when people say, what is that rock? You can say, this is a rock that didn't cry out. And they'll ask you, what do you mean? And then you can just preach the gospel to them. So we're going to do this next March. We're going to be going there, and we'd love to have you come with us to Israel. But this is such a cool prophecy. It's so specific. It's so precise. And the Pharisees are like, tell them to be quiet. He's like, no, that's not going to happen. But even if I did, you would have another problem. Somebody, creation itself, would speak forth my praise. And so he comes on the very day that Daniel had prophesied. 
So verse 42, he says, If you had known, even you, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This was a day that should have brought peace into their lives. It was a day that had long been expected that the Messiah would come, and yet it's escaping their attention. It's passing right by them. Meant for their peace. In Luke chapter 1, verse 77 through 79, speaking of the Lord, it says, To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That is the purpose of Jesus, is to bring us into peace. Or in Acts 10.36, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. This is the message we proclaim, is that Jesus brings peace. And the world's always seemingly after peace. But they will never know peace until they know Jesus. And so they acknowledge his kingship and let him saddle up on their lives and ride them and tell them, this is the way, walk ye in it. Until then, there'll never be peace. But the world kicks against that. Nobody's going to sit upon the throne of my life. Nobody's going to be on my back. Nobody's going to tell me how I want to live. I will do it however I want to. Nobody's going to tell me. And the Lord says, that's the way you want it. But you're not going to have my peace in your life. And so the world sits in turmoil. But we are the ones that proclaim this message, right? We are the ones that proclaim that Jesus rode into Jerusalem to bring peace. And that he died upon the cross and he defeated Satan. And he liberated us from the power of of death to hold us in the grave. And that there's a hope of resurrection. There's a hope of life during life. And that they can have peace with God. And that's the problem, is man does not have peace with God. There's enmity, there's division between God and man because of sin. Our sins have separated us from God. They are an offense to him. And it creates this division. But Jesus came to be the bridge, to go, get over that divide. And he gave himself... On that cross for us, he is the Lamb of God who was upon that cross. Sin of the world poured out upon him that he might pour out upon us his peace and restoration. Peace with God. Most of the world has no peace with God. That only happens through Jesus Christ. When you come and you acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. But there's not only the peace with God, there's the peace of God. Peace with God means the enmity, the hostility between God and man is removed. But now that that's been removed, there's now the opportunity to not just have the hope of heaven and having the division and the enmity removed, but now I can actually live my life knowing the peace, the calm that Jesus brings into my life. Now I realize most of you in here have made peace with God. And you know of the peace of God. But maybe for some this morning... Man, that peace is not there. It's not that you're not saved. You still have peace with God. But that rest and that calm is not ruling your heart and your life. Now listen, I I can pretty much tell you, if you have been glued to the TV for the last 13 months, you have no peace, okay? I mean, listen, they they know what they're doing. 
I watch the news, just in case you're wondering, and I've got a TV in my house. Okay, so this is not one of those sermons. I'm just saying, if you spend all your time listening to what's going wrong in the world, you're going to start to feel anxious, or if you're like me, you might start to feel a little angry. And you just gotta, you got to pull away from it. But there's not just the things that are happening in the world. There's the things that are happening in your life, in your family, in your body, among the people you love. And all of these things are like, you know, you know rabid dogs chasing us down, ready to, to just devour us. But I want you to know something. That dog is on a 10-foot chain that can't break. And you are 10 feet, 6 inches away. You're fine. But it doesn't feel fine when he's charging you, does it? When you see the slobber going and it's getting on your face and you feel the breath of that dog barking in your face, it's real what you're going through. It's not that it's fake. It's real. You have these things that are going on. But I want you to know something. Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. He's going to stand fast. I, I don't know how I landed on this. I watched one of these time waster videos um, but I guess I'm going to redeem it for the Lord right now. And there's this man standing out in the jungle, and there's this bull elephant that's charging him and comes running right up to him, and he is as still as you can possibly be. This massive beast charging him, and he just stands there. And thing gets within just a few feet of him, and it stops. And they go on, this whole article explains why this happened. It's like they sense fear. They have a, a keen sense of fear in people's emotions. And so when they saw that this man was not afraid he was going to stand there, it changed the way they reacted. I, well, here's the deal. The bull elephant can be charging you, but you are in Christ. Stand still, what? And see the salvation of the Lord. It's not that the bull elephant in your life is not real. It's not that the pit bull on the 10-foot chain that's got rabies and is barking and spits going all over your face is not real. What you're going through is real, but God is going to see you through. He's going to be faithful to you. So whether it's world events and just getting caught up, hey, maybe you need to turn your TV off and put the social media stuff down and just meditate upon the Lord and, and just remove that stuff. So you can meditate upon the things of the Lord. There is perfect peace for those whose mind is stayed upon the Lord. Peace with God, salvation. Peace of God, what we need to walk in as believers. And it's there for us. And life can bring hard things. And the only way, is you can't stop hard things, okay? Hard things are going to happen to all of us. The only thing that helps is to have your mind stayed upon the Lord. Be concentrating on his word and what he's promised and realize nothing will overtake me. Nothing will overcome me because the Lord is with me. A day meant for peace. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior, then you need to know him. You need to come to him. You need to have your sin dealt with that you might find forgiveness. What the Lord says at the end of verse 42, he says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now they're hidden from your eyes. Blindness is upon Israel nationally. They still are rejecting the Messiah to this very day. Many Jews are coming to faith, but nationally they reject Jesus. But that blindness is only in part, right? Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Read it. If you think God's done with Israel, you need to read your Bible afresh. God is not done with the nation of Israel. Romans 11, 25 through 27 tells us that this blindness has come on them in part. 
But once God has finished working among the Gentiles, the gathering and gathering of Gentiles into the church, he's going to save the remnant of Israel that remains at, at the last day. And at the end of the tribulation, as a matter of fact, at the end of the tribulation, Israel will call upon the Lord. And you know what they're going to say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That's what the disciples said when they came into Israel. And Jesus says later on in Luke, you will see me no more again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At the end of the tribulation, the remnant of Israel that remains will understand that this Jesus that came into Jerusalem on a donkey is their king and their Messiah and they will call out to him and now Jesus will come racing from heaven back down to earth not on a donkey but on a white horse to rescue and to save Israel with the simple national call of save us now. How long did it take for Jesus to come and save you when you called upon him? It was an instant and it will be an instant when they call upon him and that spiritual awakening comes to Israel, that spirit of supplication is poured out upon them, they will call upon Jesus and he will come back and he will rescue them. But at this point in time, it's hidden from their eyes. They don't see and they don't know. Verses 43 through 44, as we wrap it up, says, and it just speaks of the rejection. It says, for Days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of the visitation. There it is again, visitation, special day. You should have known the time. But now these things are, are hidden from your eyes, and what's going to happen is there's going to be a siege that's going to happen. You're going to be surrounded by an army, and you're going to be destroyed. And not one stone of this magnificent temple is going to be standing upon itself. And when you go to Israel today, you can go to the western side of that temple mount that we looked at. We looked at the eastern side of it. On the western side, the Wailing Wall, where all the Jews pray. You can, you can see this scene right there. And you see all those stones. That was the western wall right there. It's the western wall. And all those stones were from what Jesus just talked about. They're still there to this very day. They found them in an archaeological dig. And that whole thing, the pavement's crushed in. Jesus said, I, I wanted to bring peace, but you rejected me. Now you're going to deal with the enemy on your own. And this is what ended up happening to them. They rejected him. There are so many verses that speak about not rejecting the Lord. I want to just give you one. Isaiah 55, verse 6. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You're here today, and in a sense, Jesus has just marched right through this room, and he's revealed himself. Is Jesus your king? Does he rule and reign over your life? Do you have peace with God, or are you still living for yourself, and there's still separation and enmity, hostility between you and God? Your sins have separated you from the Lord. If you've not come to Jesus, then you need to come. He hung upon that cross. Your sin, my sin, was placed upon him. And it was punished in his body, leading to death. And then he rose from the dead, saying, Your sin is forgiven, and sin cannot separate you from me. And for those that come and confess that Jesus died and rose from the dead, Scripture says you'll be saved. It's a confession of your mouth. It's an acknowledgment of your need for salvation. It's your acknowledgment that you need to have peace between you and your Maker. And when you do that, he'll come into your life. 
He'll remove that sin. You don't have to go do 50 spiritual push-ups. He'll meet you right now. He'll meet you today. He'll meet you right in your seat. You don't even have to wait till I'm finished. You can just say, I need it, Lord. Save me. Forgive me. I know there's separation between me and you, and I want to have peace with you, and I certainly need to know the peace that you bring into my life. God is not meant for you to live without peace. He wants you to have peace. But you must come to the Messiah. Now, Jesus came in. Some acknowledged him. Some rejected him. And others just ignored him. Which, which are you? Are you going to be one that accepts and praises him? Are you going to be one that rejects him outright? Or one that just kind of ignores him? And goes along with what the crowd's saying. The word of the Lord says, call upon him. Seek him while he's near. If you know that Jesus is Lord and Savior and you have that awareness in your heart and your mind today, you have that. Listen closely. You have that because God has shown that to you. The Spirit of God has revealed that to you. Because this is what the Bible says. There's none that seek after God, no, not one. If your eyes are open to know that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior, and you're pushing and off coming to him because you want to engage in sin a little more, or just do your own thing a little bit more, understand this. He has opened your eyes today, and he may not be near you tomorrow. He may not have your eyes open to, for you tomorrow. That's why the Bible says, today is the day. You don't know that you have tomorrow, and even if you do have tomorrow, you don't know that your eyes will be opened because you can get your heart so hard that it comes to a point where it's like, boom, done. And we see this in the physical. You can have conflict between people for a long time, and then there comes one moment in time where it's like, boom, it's done. You guys are just sealed in your hardness against each other. It's been decades maybe since you've talked to that person. Well, that can be the case. You can become sealed in your rejection of Jesus Christ. So seek him while he's near. Call upon him while, he is, while he's opening your eyes. I want to give you that opportunity to do that. And also for those of you that maybe I have peace with God, but boy, the pit bull's got me pretty freaked out right now. I'm just not walking peace. Well, let's pray for the Lord to just shower that peace upon you, that you would have faith to trust and believe that it's going to be okay because Jesus has ridden into your life to bring you peace. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth, and we ask that right now, Lord, you would open eyes and you would draw people to yourself.